You're listening to Banter Radio. I'm your host, Will Sherwin. For this 10th episode, I picked up my friend Brian Wainwright from Monterey, California, and we drove down to L.A. for the annual L.A. Pomo Gathering, April 9th, 2017. I facilitated one of the workshops in which I played songs that were evocative narrative principles and recorded the discussion with the other group members. Kathy Adams organized the event, and you can get in touch with the L.A. community by joining Pomo Therapists on their Facebook group or asking Kathy to join the Google group. If you have any questions, comments, or song suggestions, you can email them to me at wwsherwin at gmail.com. Go to sfbantr.org for the show notes. Because of copyright reasons, I'm only playing short excerpts from most of the songs, but you can find a link to the full versions there. Enjoy the show. If I could pass around the mic and you could say your name, maybe where you work from or something about your work. Hi, I'm Charlie Lang. I'm a uh, narrative therapist and educator here in Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Pritika Segal, and I am a second year student for MFT program at USC Rossier. I'm Carrie Thorne. I'm a marriage and family therapist here in Los Angeles. I'm Lucy Cotter. I'm an artist, a teacher, and uh, a narrative therapist in Los Angeles. I'm Larry Zucker. I'm a narrative therapist and educator also in Los Angeles. Thank you all very much. I wanted to start this podcast by thanking Kathy Adams for organizing this Pomo gathering and for her hospitality. And it feels like the spirit of hospitality and her work really permeates this. And I'm so appreciative. It's the start of the Pomo gathering here at 9.30 in the morning, April 9th, 2017. And for me, it's already been worth coming down here for the uh, conversations we've had with Kathy and with the friends she's brought over with me and Brian Wainwright. So I just want to start with thanking her. I want to say a few, a couple quotes. One from John Cage, 20th century composer, who said, good music can act as a guide to good living. And I also heard David Epson say something about therapy as mutual gift exchange, or conversations as mutual gift exchange. And I was hoping that what we could do in these two hours is kind of exchange gifts, or principles, or stories, or quotes that are kind of precious to us from narrative therapy world, and use the songs as a touchstone or jumping off point for those kind of conversations. I also especially like to uh, think of this as making something for people who couldn't attend this conference. One of my favorite things about going to these conferences and trainings is all the conversations we have outside of the trainings, the kind of casual conversations, and to give people who don't have access to these conferences a chance to get a feel of that. So it can be very casual how we talk. Sound good? Yeah. All right. The first song I wanted to play, it's a song written in 1967 by Dan Penn and Spooner Oldham from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And this is a rendition done by the Sweet Inspirations, and it's called Sweet Inspiration. And to me, it makes me think about the power of inspiration. One of the big turning points for me in my career was discovering narrative therapy and being so inspired by it. It especially happened when I read chapter four of Maps of Narrative Practice, when Michael talks about working with a, a man who'd been homeless for about 10 years, and his mother had committed suicide. 
and he had been told to get in touch with his anger by a lot of therapists. But Michael worked with him around what, what the preferred story he wanted to tell was something about the way his, his mom actually did love him. It wasn't just getting in touch with his anger. His mom did love him, and there were examples of how she committed suicide that told him that she loved him, and he wanted to hold on to that. And he brought in a family whose mom had attempted suicide and the young kids to hear an outsider witness this man's story. And it was so moving to me. I never heard anything like that from the therapy world. And I felt so inspired. And I, I, I've thought about how, how important inspiration is for me. How my, I'm a different therapist when I'm inspired. I'm a different person when I'm inspired. So I want to play this song and ask you a few questions after that as a jumping off point. Okay? So maybe a jumping off point for some conversations is, like I told the story of when I was first inspired by narrative therapy, but that's, you could share a story of when you were inspired by narrative therapy. Other things like, you know, what do you think makes a, an inspiring story? Um, do you think about inspiration in your work? Do you look for what inspires people? How do you think about it? What was evocative for you? Were there particular lyrics that stood out to you, made you think of some aspect of your work? It's interesting. I, I had read these lyrics before, but they didn't really speak to me initially. And um, But hearing the song, it really gave me a very different take on things. There was, um, it made me think of my mother. Um, my mother went through a lot of hardship in her life, and um, I actually get really, really kind of choked up, to be honest. It's, she's somebody who's really helped me through a lot of hard times in my life, just the thought of her. She, she has what I call the the, I call it the put one foot in front of the other kind of philosophy that's helped me get through a lot of hard times. It's, I've been through a lot of difficulty lately, and um, just she she went through the McCarthy era, the anti-communist witch hunts of the 50s. She lost her husband, and so it's she went through a lot of hardship, and I saw the strength that she had, and it's inspired me to to go through a lot of hard times myself as a as a trans woman, and to persevere and connect with community just as she did and so hearing these these lyrics of inspiration and needing love and community makes me think of that um this is charlie i um uh will when you asked like if i had an initial inspiration in regards to narrative therapy uh yeah i remember it very clearly um and it actually involves Larry Zucker, who's sitting across the table from me. When I was in my very last quarter of my graduate school program in clinical psychology, um, there was this one class where I think we had one or two days of narrative therapy. And up until that point, all of the modalities that I had been exposed to and that I was dutifully studying seemed to more or less endlessly circle the problem in clients' lives. And I remember sitting in that classroom, and I don't remember exactly what metaphor Larry used, or I think there was, there was 
we were invited to draw pictures of, of something. And I got the sense that, oh my God, you can pay attention to what's working a little bit well. And it was like uh, gates opened and I just wanted to go down that path. And uh, that was my first moment of realizing there was this al alternative way of working that was very different from a lot of the more traditional models. And uh, I was hooked. I have a similar story uh, about Michael that you just shared about me with this sort of aha moment where I thought, you know, Michael presented work like the work you just described where he differentiates uh, how narrative therapy would, you know, pay attention to this man's connections to his mother and to his hopes and his dreams, not to whatever the therapist thought he should be feeling <laughs> about what had happened in his life. And, and when I first saw Michael demonstrate work organized around that notion of uh, either <coughs> unique outcome or exception, um, or, or even intentionality, sort of therapy organized around people's intentions rather than around our understandings of what's going on inside of them. When I first saw that work, it was like I was saved. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my God. I, I, at the time, it really felt like, oh, I get to stay in this field. Because it was starting to feel like the field was closing off to me ethically. It was starting to feel like I was, I, I'd learned to do the wrong things. All right? And so when I first was inspired by Michael, it was an amazing thing. And then just looking at the lyrics here a little bit, uh, and th again, the story you just told, Will, about uh, Michael's work with the uh, man whose mother committed suicide. And if I'm, if I'm out in the rain, baby, and in a bad situation, you know I just reach back in my mind and think about how angry I am that you killed yourself? It's like, no, I, I reach back in my mind and you know, get my sweet inspiration, the way you, Carrie, just described thinking back about your mother. It's like, that's what people, that's why we go back we don't go back to explore the, the, necessarily to explore the harm done to us, certainly if the therapist thinks it's necessary. We go back for inspiration, and we carry that inspiration forward. Um, it's Lucy. Um, I also was struck by the uh, line, you know, I just reach back in my mind, and there I find your sweet, sweet inspiration. I was uh, thinking partly about remembering practices um, and how you can have that continuing bond uh, with a person, with a idea, uh, with a part of your life, and borrow it into different contexts. Um, and, but I also was thinking about uh, Michael, he seems to be with us today, about uh, actually uh, very close to when he passed, um, a video that I saw him present where uh, somebody was extremely, I think they may have used the word uh, depressed, and they, it just seemed so, uh, there was no space around them. It seemed so sort of flat and hard for this person to express themselves. And, and Michael asked about this person's uh, favorite children's book. And she started to talk about 101 Dalmatians. And the beauty of what happened to her face going from feelings, well, what one would see is so shut down and sad to uh, this sort of opening of expression. And he continued to create space with his questions in, in such a way that it became connected to her love of animals and her advocacy for them. And to me, that was an amazing, magical moment of inspiration for my work. Just a quick uh, addition that you just, Lucy just inspired in me, which is the opening line to the song, I need 
you're a sweet inspiration, right? So a, a client who's in the depths of depression and despair actually needs something from the therapist, right? They, they, they don't want it. They're not sort of hoping for it. They need it, right? And in the, in the, in the story you're telling, Michael provided that thing. Uh, I also recently saw uh, Michael White's video in our class, and it was about two brothers and sisters who were having these dynamics, and what he focused was on love, which they wouldn't have otherwise focused on. So I really like that he would not focus on the obvious things, like, oh, there is a tension, there is sort of dependency. He focused on something they never thought was there, but it's there. And for me, any inspiring story would be when a person goes through some sort of adversity and comes out winning. It's like from negative to positive. And people really connect to that. And that's why when the lyrics is about to, it's like some sort of validation that I need something positive. And when you can give that to a person, um, it's inspiring and they move forward. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. Will, I, I, I was so struck when you mentioned chapter four in Michael's book because I too was so extraordinarily inspired by that story that I uh, ended up writing a screenplay based on that chapter and running it by Cheryl in, in, uh, down in Adelaide and stuff and getting permission to do it. So that's still waiting to see the light of day in terms of performance, but um, yeah, that was really, uh, that was inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. And Pritika, when you were talking about need for something positive, Michael focusing on love, I remember early on, before I was involved with narrative therapy, seeing a client and, and saying to my supervisor, you know, they, didn't, they don't, didn't have a lot of problems this week. And I wasn't sure what to talk about because they weren't talking about problems. And the supervisor said, yeah, that sometimes happens to me. It usually doesn't last very long. <laughs> and that was it. And there was nothing that said, how do you... How do you have rich conversations if they're talking about good things that happened in the week, or at least it wasn't such a bad week? And I feel like narrative therapy has such a rich development of those times when someone isn't feeling overwhelmed by problems. There's stuff you can do. There's things you can ask. It's not just say, oh, that's good for, good for you, and you wait till, it, <laughs> till the problems go back. I mean, he was being facetious, but I think it was also there was some truth to that style of working. Well, I was thinking that's one inspiring therapist, uh, supervisor. You know? <laughs> Let's go on to number two. This is a song by uh, another Southern songwriter, Willie Nelson from Texas, written in 1972, um, title track from his album, Words Don't Fit the Picture. I thought about this because it makes me think of times in my life when the words around me or the words other people were saying or that I had available to me just didn't quite feel like they fit the picture. I want to talk about some of my work experience with that and see if it's evocative for some of you all. If this is a game we play And if this is a role I play Where are the words I say Picture, uh, anymore. That uh, song uh, makes me think of my first 
job in the mental health field is working at a group home. And there's a group home, it's called Level 14 for Severely Emotionally Disturbed Youth. And, uh, and then we had some trainings and talked about how these kids are traumatized and about importance of attachment and how their attachment's been disrupted. And so they're insecure attachment and um, the, their you know, positive behavioral plans for them. So I was expecting to see a certain kind of person. <laughs> but when I was actually there, that didn't feel like a great description of, of the kids. There was often kindness and, and socializing, and some kids who even hated people loved dogs, for example. You know, the, the kids didn't feel like just the problem. It felt like the institution was the problem, and they were miserable in this institution with these gray walls and not much to do. And they haven't had so many opportunities to do other things. And so it felt like the words that we had to just say, these kids have been traumatized and this is really emotionally disturbed, didn't quite fit. But I didn't have other words exactly to make sense of, of the situations I was working with. So I had that feeling like this doesn't fit, but what else is there? And... Uh, the line, where are the words I say to you? I'm I, I longing for words to kind of make sense of this and to understand these kids and not just say they're traumatized and they're severely emotionally disturbed. So that's one example where the words just didn't fit the picture. And the most recent example of that kind of feeling was when Trump got elected. I had the feeling like the words I have to understand society, it doesn't quite fit. And I think it was so surprising and I've been sort of reorganizing my language, what's important to me since that happened. So I can pass the mic to other people. You can go into the Trump thing if you want, but you can also talk about maybe what questions, memories, or stories are evoked in you from the lyrics. If you've had some work experiences where the words around didn't fit the picture. Also, if there have been times when words themselves didn't seem to fit the picture you were seeing and you reached for other means of representation uh, outside of words. So if anyone feels called. Oh, this is Larry. You're telling the story of working in a, uh, the group home uh, brings to mind a story of one of my first clinical experiences where it, the image that comes to mind now thinking about this is those refrigerator magnets where there's like a couple hundred words and you rearrange them on your refrigerator to make, you know, to make clever sayings. But there's only a couple hundred words. You know, it's like the, the words that you can use to make, experience of, make sense of experience are already chosen. Right? So when I think back to my work in the psychiatric hospital, people come in in tremendous distress and disarray, and everyone is well-intended there to help them make sense of their experience, but they only have refrigerator magnets. You know, they've only got so many words that they can use to help people make sense of their experience, and there's so little imagination in that. And the, the words that I'm remembering in particular, these young, it's, I shouldn't laugh, it's really sad, but these young people that were on very serious antipsychotic medications because of the you know, chronic and persistent mental illnesses that they were struggling with, they had all sorts of uh, motoric effects. Uh, and so they had this group that was meant to be helpful to them in dealing with those motoric effects, but the group was called Gross Motor Group. <laughs> it's like, that's, what, that's, that's the best they could come up with, right, off the fridge was, oh, I guess it's time for Gross Motor Group. And I just, I cringe now, thinking, really? That was the only way we could define to describe the experiences that people were having in that context? Right. This is Lucy. 
to me, this song was the most evocative of just narrative in general. And I feel like we could talk about that for the rest of the time, funny enough. Uh, not that I'm trying, there's no agenda to that statement. <laughs> um, it just, so much of our descriptions in life are outgrown and so many ways that stories are told both by ourselves and by others and by society, I feel like are limiting and constraining. Uh, the idea that words don't fit the picture is a really close way of saying that things need to be fluid, whether it's uh, identity or relationships or the way we see or describe ourselves. And so that ideally we would always be deconstructing those kind of identity conclusions. So that was my first experience uh, when I heard the song. But my other thoughts had to do with research and the idea of performance and how if one goes all the way from the arc of quantitative research to qualitative research to performance as a mode of research that I feel like song in general and song in community and these specific lyrics speak to the power of performing using expression as an alternative way of representing oneself. I haven't heard that, that phrase perf performance as, as research. Could, do you mind saying more about that? I guess in my limited experience, it's a reference to Kenneth and Mary Gergen or the work of Kip Jones. Do you know that work? He's working out of England, and it's the idea that the social sciences don't need to be constrained by a sort of academic speak, but that if we're kind of rejecting, if we choose to reject quantitative as a modality and we move to qualitative, then can't we move another step over to things being multi-storied and participatory, and when you, once you're in that land, can't you then include any kind of evocative expression that comes from it? And I think that their work captures that idea. Yeah, this is Carrie. I, in, in hearing this, I mean, I, I do a lot of work with families and kids, and um, oftentimes people see things through the lens of what, well, I'll, I'll call it for purposes of this, the dominant paradigm, which is looking at things through a behavioral context in which which everything is seen through, on one end, punishment, and on the other end, through um, rewards and stickers and, and things like that. I kind of look at things through more of what's the context people live in, and what what is what are their needs, and, and you know, for for love and connection and and in in a family. And so, oftentimes, what with people I work with, they 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 it's hard for them to see just that people need love and connection and, and they, they, they tend to look at things in terms of, well, I've got to punish them or I've got to reward them and, and things like that. So there's that. When I heard these lyrics though, what came up for me was I've been in communities recently where I would describe it as almost cultish behavior. I was part of a sex positive community in which I was kicked out and the words don't fit the picture anymore. I think people saw things in a certain way and they thought they were acting to protect a community and and so I don't want to make this all about me but but I think when people feel a threat to themselves in a community 
they sometimes act in certain ways, and and it, it becomes almost sort of cultish, and so they'll 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 do things that to protect themselves. And I've seen that in a lot of progressive communities, unfortunately, um, where they'll 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 try and defend themselves and, and act in certain ways. So, and then in, even in my recent work setting that I worked in, where I, I, I lost a job, they they will try and defend actions in the name of, of, of saying, well, you don't fit in here. You know, you're not part of us. And so they'll, they'll, do, they'll, they'll justify things. And so, but the justification has more to do with power over than being in an egalitarian situation where I think all of us yearn to be in a place where we're equals with one another and that power is shared as opposed to power held over others. So the words don't fit the picture anymore. They may try to act like they're sharing power with you, but they're not really. I, I hope this makes sense. Yeah, and so that's, I look at things through that lens. Um, this is Pratika, and I agree with you, Carrie, uh, because for me, this, uh, these lyrics spoke to me as if there's a facade and we're, do not, we're not calling something what it actually is. And I've been a part of culture where people will continue to do something, which, and it's a facade, it's an act, it's a role they're playing, but it's not what it is. And I'm, it's funny that you mentioned uh, Trump because <laughs> I feel like people, again, there is a facade. People are thinking, oh, this is how it's happening, but they're not looking at the deeper picture. Like, they don't see what, they don't realize what actually is happening. He might say something, it's on the surface, but underneath there's a lot more. So that is what, for me, these lyrics spoke. And I just feel that you should just call out, like, it is what it is. And if you identify it, then we can move forward. But if you just don't want to identify it, uh, then we'll stay the same. And the words will never fit the picture. This is Charlie. Thanks, Pritik. I really appreciate your sharing there. Um, what, what stood out for me was letter writing. I just finished working with a client recently who uh, was very had been very captured by an addiction to Vicodin, to prescription medication, and uh, we were finishing up our work at least for now. And the story or the words that described who he was in the world really presented kind of a wall of what our work became all about was dismantling that wall and creating space for alternatives. And I wrote him a letter uh, that I shared in our last session. And it just reminded me of how, you know, words can have an oral expression, but there is oftentimes a real power associated with the written word. And that was uh, certainly my experience with this client. I just want to be clear that my statements were not against sex-positive communities at all. I just That was just my experience in one community. That was Carrie. These lyrics also called to mind Tom Anderson's work for me. Something that always, uh, I, I can't remember years ago I heard him say this, but he talked about when somebody says something, he never says to them, what did, you, what did you mean by such and such? Somebody would describe their experience using their chosen words. And 
he always thought that the question, what do you mean by what you just said, is offensive. Well, I meant what I just said. You know, I, I use the words that I have a access to to describe my experience. And so uh, what Tom would do would be to search for further words. So somebody would use a word to describe their experience, and, and Tom, in pursuit of a richer understanding of that, would say, you know, what other words might be in that word? Right, and he'd be he'd be looking for an additional additional language, additional words. Maybe I'm still in my refrigerator magnet thing, where I don't want there to be a limited number of words. Right. <laughs> right. And then the other thought I had just about the lyrics is, this I think of this sort of as like a couples therapist. It's like a couple comes to me, and it's like I want the relationship to be okay. And the the, couple, the relationship that Willie Nelson's singing about here, he found the words at the end of the song. The words were goodbye. Yeah. Right. Those were the words that didn't, that did fit the picture for him. Right, and it's like, okay, if, if those are the words. Right? And it's not, if I'm their couples therapist, then I want the words to be hello. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I want. It's like we're searching for words for, that fit their picture. It was interesting that it was called a one-act play. It made me think about the fact that ideally our relationships allow us to have conversations where both people are evolving and the relationship is evolving and that without that kind of dialogue and restoring how things can end in one act and how in another way one can sort of invite those new ways of telling stories to each other so that people can stay on the same page as they grow. Um. I also just want to uh, uh, thank uh, you and Carrie and Pritika for bringing up the, the overtly political element of this. And you know, my own two cents on Trump these days is he doesn't want words to even matter, right? He, he's 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 making words meaningless, right? And so the opposite of searching for what people might mean, he's not concerned with what people intend, right? And and words are meant to obscure, and meant to take power over. Right? So the third song is actually written by David Denborough from Dulwich Center in Adelaide, Australia. He's done collaborative songwriting with individuals and communities especially. So this particular song was done with transgender women in prison where he met with them and took some of the words that they said and made a song and they actually played it on the speakers in the prison. This is called Song of Survival. Well, I've seen things that no woman should ever see. I felt things no person should feel. And my spirit within these walls will live forevermore. And in the hearts of those who truly love me, I'll be forever free. This is a song of survival.
comment of what a song that's beautiful and uh, people are moved um, I don't, I don't want to speak for David Denbro too much about this song and how how it came about um, but I was really moved by it as well and moved to know that it was played in the prison and imagining what that was like I don't really know but I just imagine it and talking about sweet inspiration the fact that he would do this and, and write a song based on the words the women in the prison and played it for them. That was inspiring to me and inspired me to try different things to be creative, seeing the way David Denver was creative. And I, I, I've been thinking that kind of creativity is contagious. And I feel like, uh, you know, this song has helped me be more creative. So thank you, David Denver. I'd love to interview you someday about your process. <laughs> so hint, hint. Um, and yeah, and I think other people would like to hear more about behind the scenes of your process in writing this. Is that, is that the case? Yeah. <laughs> so um, some questions, you know, you know, if you think about your own story or your community story, what, what would it mean to you if that was put into, that story was put into a song, your own story of survival put into a song of survival by someone else? How do you think hearing back your words in a song may have a different powers than hearing them without music? And, or just what other songs of survival have you come across? What questions do you have for David about his process of uh, collaborative songwriting? And just what stands out to you? Where does the song take you? Anything else you'd like to say? I think uh, survival uh, right now with all <laughs> the political things which is going on, this song kind of speaks to me about that, where how people are suffering and just you know working for survival which I think is our birthright. Uh, I've heard stories from my um, grandparents how they had to survive when there was a warlike situation in, in my country and uh, how we take that for granted. And this song kind of reminds me of how they survived and they tried to make something better for the upcoming community. And that inspires me to do the same, to change what people, to bring change for people so that one day that we can all be equal and nobody has to go through this, you know, just fight for surviving, for living, which is our birthright. And the other song, I don't want to like, take names, but which comes to me for survival is Roar from Katy Perry. That <laughs> Roar. It's again, she talks about women empowerment and uh, just the basic like battle of sexes and everything. Um, it kind of inspires me, but
but it it also makes me feel that this is so basic and uh, we should not be fighting for this but it's happening yeah but wonderful song thank you so much um i i i don't uh pretend to speak for David Dedenborough at all, but I'm, but I'm pretty sure that he frequently identifies himself less as a narrative therapist than more as a community worker. Right? And he, he brings narrative practice to community making and community building. And so the, the way in which this song was written and the role that music plays in people's lives politically um, is, is what stands out to me. Uh, and it, it calls to mind one of my m musical heroes, Bob Marley, whose work was you know, uh, I'm thinking Redemption Song, or um, which is probably one of my favorite songs of all time, uh, but but written with a purpose that has to do with you know making of community, right? not written just to you know sell jingles. Right? So it's, it's very moving uh, to me. This, this is a beautiful song. I loved it. I was just thinking about how through history, um, the song has been used to keep spirit alive and how multicultural that is and then I was thinking about having Jewish heritage and the line somewhere in here oh um, my spirits and my spirit within these walls will live forevermore and I was thinking about being told as a Jewish child that in Russia when Jews were not allowed to practice that they would uh, whisper through the pipes in the walls um, to keep um, those traditions alive. That just made me think of that. It's scary. I, I relate also to what Larry was saying about the, there, there was a, a woman I was working with that um, I, I did play the, the, what was it, the Songs of Freedom song? I can't remember, the Redemption song, the Redemption song, and, and, and it was, it was, it was very moving. She had never heard it, and there there is a power in, in song that just kind of moves beyond words almost. It's I can't even think of the words myself, but it, it there is a power there that's that's yeah that's really important. Um, I think I, I I grew up with song in my family, and um, I'm grateful for that. I think I'm, I'm grateful. I didn't know what to expect coming here this morning, and I was deeply, deeply moved by this song, and I'm grateful just on a personal level as a trans woman to, to have heard this and reminds me of, um, of my own worth and, um, and the struggles that I go through, and I'm grateful to hear this song and grateful for David for bringing this song to people in, that, are, that are suffering also. Hi, this is Charlie. Um, I just had the great good fortune of returning from a 10-day trip to Cuba, and I'm still processing uh, the sort of polarities of their culture and ours, and all that we have and all that they don't have there. They don't have roads, they don't have cars, they oftentimes don't have food. And what they do have everywhere you go, in Havana, in the mountain villages, in the fishing towns, is song and community. And uh, it's amazing and just so inspiring. And uh, thanks for sharing this song. I was also just thinking about um, documentation in general and how 
when we talk about narrative practices, how often they capture something that's quite different than we talk about psychological language in general and how traditional psychology often valued this kind of uh, legitimization of this very academic Eurocentric speak and how important it is to kind of resurrect and honor the power of uh, feeling language and language that has a repetition, that that's really an alternative story. David Denborough wrote about this song in the book Collective Narrative Practice. Quote, we recorded this song so that it could be played and replayed privately in people's cells, but equally significant, an opportunity arose in which it could be publicly performed. World AIDS Day is commemorated in prisons as it is in the wider community. One year, some of the transgender folks suggested that their song could be played at the World AIDS Day event at which all the prisoners would attend. I can still vividly remember this event. In that context, the performance of this song represented an expression of dignity, defiance, and reclamation. This was a definitional ceremony of sorts. It was also a form of social resistance or social action. It challenged the dominant conception of transgender people in the prison. It claimed a sense of pride amidst degradation." End quote. Thank you, David, for your work. If you, if listeners would like to contact David, you can be reached at daviddenborough.dulwichcenter.com.au. A link will be also put on the show notes at sfbantr.org. The next song comes from a group in Oakland, which I've had the pleasure to work with, called Beats, Rhymes, and Life. And they do hip-hop therapy with youth. In their groups, they have a therapist, a recording artist, and a youth advocate who all run the group together. They also have a drop-in center every Wednesdays, 3 to 6 p.m. near Lake Merritt that any youth can go to uh, for free. They have a recording studio. If a youth is just interested in, in hip-hop and wants to start writing lyrics, they'll help them with expressive art exercises so they can start to write. They'll teach them how to write to a beat. And once it gets to level they're happy with, they have a recording studio right there. So I took a youth there one afternoon, and he recorded songs the same day. So they do great work. They also do trainings for therapists, and they have Title IV-E funding, so there's a nonprofit out there. training at your organization. It's called Beats, Rhymes, and Life. For more information, visit brl-inc.org. This is the song from their first music video, Rose from the Concrete. myself why these rappers got you thinking that it's cool to be ignorant meanwhile they learn the game and play you like nintendo learn some more and you be getting dope not getting locked up 
like my pops was, be different, you could be the story of living, not dying young, you could be the hope for the children, the light in the dark, the spark for the heart, if you don't believe in yourself, then just pretend it's a start. Rose from the bottom, but we came for the peace, feel free to judge, cause we came from the streets, me I don't know why they hate, but guarantee it's okay, we the roses that rose from concrete, we the soldiers that fight for our beliefs That they believe in us, no way But yeah. guarantee yeah. we gon' be, okay. be okay Growing up in foster care, all I got isn't fair Oh gosh, I swear I got the feeling in the air When people stare with that evil glare Feeling all alone at the park, skipping stones At the pond, it is still going on And never giving up on the streets Hanging tough against all odds I do it for the cause Always motivated to get that applause Graduated with that diploma though Lost my grandma, feeling so lonely though People tell me she's in a better place She's looking down with a smile on her face But moving on, I'm still going strong Hope nothing in life goes wrong It should go right with or without a fight I wanna see everything before I see that light though Rose from the bottom but we came for the peace Feel free to judge cause we came from the streets Me I don't know why they hate but Guaranteed it's okay We the roses that rose from concrete We the soldiers that fight for our beliefs That they believe in us no way but Guarantee we gon' be okay, we gon' be okay Flying through the skies while I fight the planet's gravity Better between how it seems my dreams and my reality I wanna make a masterpiece like reasonable doubt Then all the critics imprison me with their reasonable doubt Yo, like it's gotta be something of a lottery You don't wanna waste your time just to be in poverty But I be abolishing the top to gain the slave in my mind Greatness is coming, boy, this is taking its time Yeah Never had nothing, not even a little bit My life be getting deep, feel like I'm stuck up in a bullpit But I'm a matador, so you missing your target Some people talk about your closest cause you got him in target down me Cause you still clean like Listerine Don't ever let them haters come and demolish your dreams Stay focused, we do it together We move like propellers and show the people something So beautiful, growing this weather, yeah Rose from the Concrete by Beats, Rhymes, and Life. And, uh, you know, I have, like I said, I have the pleasure to work with them and see the kind of playful, creative ways they get youth expressing themselves through through lyrics, through rap. And I know from some of the youth I work with at Dreamcatcher that uh, some of the youth spend a lot of time writing lyrics, listening to beats in their head, going over it, getting the rhythms down, and become very skilled with it. So there's a few lyrics here that stood out to me, the evocative narrative principles, especially the one, um, if you don't believe in yourself, then just pretend it's a start. And it made me think about like performing identity and maybe what you were talking about, about performance. And I don't know so much about that. I've heard about things like a performative turn in the social sciences, but um, it, it's interesting to think about, instead of waiting around to try to change every belief you have, starting to perform a new identity first before waiting to believe it. <laughs> I, th I thought that was evocative for me, and I wanted to talk about performance. And also ask you, you know, what questions you might have for any of these artists, or what lyrics stand out as evocative narrative principles.
Uh, well, when I think of performing, I, I, what the, the word that comes up for me is context. And, um, you know, in narrative therapy, I teach and we think and work in, in, in the sense that all people are multi-storied and there's a multiplicity of stories that make up our lives. So depending on what context we're in, you know, a different context will elicit different versions of identity for us. You know, for many years before becoming a therapist, I made my living as an actor. And that, I think, is a lot of the reason I was drawn to narrative, because of the focus on story. And it was familiar terrain for me. And in the class that I'm teaching right now, Queer Counseling and Narrative Practice, we just had a, a very rich conversation this past week about the contexts of our lives. I, it also reminds me of that 12-step uh, thing, fake it till you mean it, you know, which I'm also a big fan of. And I think that as a narrative therapist, that's oftentimes how I situate myself. You know, what are the alternative stories that this person hasn't or these people haven't had an opportunity to even be given permission to explore the possibility of, right? And I think in our conversations and in our, in our dialogues, we're creating a foundation for the possibility of different performances of people's lives. It's a, it's, I think it's a lot about permission. You know, and, and what you said made me think about, um, you know, I, I used to work in preschools for like seven years, and the kids would be performing different identities all the time. And they, I'm Superman, you know, I'm, now I'm a soldier, now I'm the mommy, you know. And it wasn't like there was this true self that they were trying to hold on to, like, this is me, I'm always this way. They're always performing different identities. It's when you get older, are you more restricted to trying on different ways, different ways of being yourself, different ways of being. When, uh, this is Larry, uh, when people who don't know much about narrative therapy first talk to me about it, they sometimes say something like, oh yeah, narrative therapy, stories, the stories we tell ourselves, right? And they, and they think of it as like, you know, people write new stories for themselves. And I've, I've always thought it's, it's a good start in trying to understand what we do, but it, it leaves out the performative. You know, we, no, we are not the stories we tell ourselves. We're the stories we live. And the living of a story is a performance of a story. And so a performance without an audience is also not a lived story. Right? So the idea that narrative therapists invite people to create alternate performances of self and to find alternate community to support those performances, to find audience for those those performances, that's what identity is, right? And again, just with, uh, just like with the David Dedenborough song, I'm, I'm as moved by the context that created this music as I am by the music, you know, that, that people were asked to, you know, create the performance not of this song, but of themselves as musicians, people who wouldn't necessarily have thought of themselves as musicians until somebody helped create a context in which they could perform that identity, right? And th this is a literal version of that performance, in that sense. Uh, but I think this, it, it inspires the same in me, which is we're always trying to figure out some way for a person to sort of imagine a, a new telling of who they might be and to put that into life, in, into, into an actual enactment of that self in some way, in, in an actual world with actual others and actual community. And uh, just like with David's song, I'm you know, super moved by the fact that this even exists, that there's people out there giving other people a chance to give voice at a communal level to their lived experience. Right. And as uh, I think uh, Carrie was saying earlier, there's something about music that is beyond words and more powerful than words, even though these words are so beautiful. Right. 
there's there's something about growing it says growing up in foster care and I, there's I was at a I'm, I'm part of a at the LGBTQ Center I go to a thing called trans perceptions there's a group there and there's this one trans woman who lives in her car and she talks to me about growing up in foster care and um, and the strength it's taken her to kind of just stay alive and what's kept her alive is people who love and care about her and community and that's what's kept her going and she was volunteering last night at a at a, an event where there was song and dance and it's something that just lifted her spirit up and brought joy to her heart and that's just makes me reminds me how important those things are they're they're not just kind of nice frivolous things they're actually critical I really like the second paragraph. First, he's talking about uh, his struggle, and then he suddenly brings up his grandmother. And then he again starts with what he's, how he's moving on. And that is something which I really like about narrative therapy is that they don't uh, put a person in a box. They don't define them. Uh, okay, this, these are the emotions we're going to focus on. It is not that this is the problem we're going to focus on. It is more like a different approach where they view a, a person as a whole and address every emotion, whether negative or positive. It was really nice to see that how a human is a complex person, the complexities of a person, and it's, you cannot just categorize them in one thing. That is why this paragraph kind of really uh, spoke to me. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, last song that I selected is by a Philadelphia rock group called Hop Along. Uh, this is made in 2015. It's called Powerful Man. And it's about a time when she was 18, the singer, and she saw a father physically abusing his eight or 10 year old son. And she didn't know what to do to respond. So she went to the teacher for help. The teacher didn't seem very interested, but she was stuck with how do I respond to a situation where someone's harming someone else. Sun setting on the street, your dad told you not to look at me. Down came the face hard upon lyrics, uh, but it, it made me think of a few things, and becoming a therapist, it's often helped me with people who may have been victims of harm, but what about when working with someone who's uh, causing harm to another, and what are the principles and the questions that to use when you're with someone who's, who's harming another person? 
I'm reading a book by Alan Jenkins called Becoming Ethical, Working with Men Who Have Abused. And I think there's a lot of great principles in there. And I wonder about experiences uh, from the group about when you're working with someone who is causing harm to another. What are some of the ways you talk about it? What are some of the principles you keep in mind? This, this memory when she was 18 of not knowing what to do when you saw someone harming another stayed with her and she wrote a song about it. And I, I, there have been times when I've seen someone harming another and not sure what to do. How do I intervene? The part of the lyric that was uh, about what she tried to do uh, brings to mind uh, Alan Wade's work on responses. You know, the, 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 the prevailing discourse is that we're, in, we're impressed if somebody is able to intervene and we wonder why they weren't able to intervene if they weren't able to intervene and we don't recognize many of the attempts people make to intervene. So partly this lyric to me captures it. If, if the songwriter were somebody that I was working with, I, I'd be wanting to develop the story of those efforts, those intentions, uh, how she was brave enough to, to try that. Th that sort of work where, where you capture the response to the oppressive acts of others, not the effects of the oppressive acts of others. And then the, um, you mentioned Alan Jenkins' uh, book. I have not read this one, but an earlier work of his, uh, Invitation to Responsibility, has shaped my work a lot when I work with people who you know, perpetrate violence or act in controlling ways towards, other and, uh, towards others. And, and if I tie it to the lyrics of this song a bit, uh, he looked like a powerful man. The lyric doesn't say he was a powerful man. They say it says he looked like a powerful man. So, you know, what I'd like to think is that that might be one possible identity that that man is performing at that moment, but it might not be his preferred identity. It might, the, might not be the only self he wants to be. So a lot of Alan Jenkins' work, uh, as I remember from the first title, Invitation to Responsibility, is we're trying to get somebody to take responsibility for how they want to show up in the world. And is that, in fact, how they want to show up in the world? And it, in my experience, it often isn't. They're, they're actually caught up in some uh, discursive experience of their own around masculinity, around power, behaving in ways that they're performing an, uh, an identity that isn't necessarily a preferred one, but might be an assigned one or an, inher an inherited one or a habitual one that hasn't been examined. So those are the thoughts that this song brings to mind for me. Um, I'm actually inspired, Larry, this is Lucy, by you thinking of Alan Wade's work I I wouldn't have seen that there, and, and that's actually really amazing to me um, and moving to me because those signs of response are so subtle and so easy to miss, and um, it, it just meant a lot to me uh, that you brought it forth. Uh, similarly to what you were saying about Alan Jenkins, I guess I wasn't thinking about it as the client being... Uh, the person who wrote the song, I was thinking of it as uh, the powerful man being the client. And so sort of my go-to was what parts of identity is this story disqualifying, and if it was my client, to explore the values of the person that may be a counter story to these actions. I have was recently working with a, a couple and I think when I, I worked with the, the man who was seeming to be to be somewhat violent, I, I wanted to not come off as like hostile to him and, and so I was I wanted to be curious 
And so I was, I was just first and foremost wanting to understand his story. And that was kind of where I came from, was to kind of see what was going on with him and understand, you know, what led to him being the way he is in the world and how he viewed things and how he saw the relationship. And once he had a sense that I understood him, and at least that, at least that my perception that I think he thought I understood him, then I could go to a place of like, is, is this really how you want to be? And, and hope that my asking that question doesn't push him away, you know, because it, it, there's a possibility in, in asking that question that I could push him away, you know, and, and come off as the, the white guy in the room because this happened to be an African-American man, you know, but I also would address the, the kind of racial issues of I'm, I'm a white guy and or a white woman in this case, or I, I misgendered myself here. So that, but that was my kind of approach to, 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 he's the powerful man, so to speak, trying to be, see him as a, as a, as a person. Yeah, there was acts of quote unquote perpetration, you know, from what I understood. He has a story too, you know. Um, this is Pratika, and uh, these slurs uh, spoke to me because I've been and I've seen uh, violence. I'm not going to get into that much, but uh, I've always seen, like mostly I've observed that uh, the perpetrator would somehow justify their acts by telling the victim that you deserve it somehow. And after a while, uh, they start believing that. It's just a, a better way to put your point across than going into something like this. And I once had a client who uh, was abusing or harming his wife. And I agree with Larry that he did not want to be that. But somehow the circumstances were such that he thought that he didn't see any other way out. And uh, it took a lot of time and a lot of empathy for him to change. But you cannot be judgmental in that room. And you, even if you feel, and if I, even if I could, you know, feel for the victim, I could not somehow, you know, take sides with her. I had to be empathetic towards him as well. And that's uh, very hard sometimes. Um, but I think uh, that is our duty as mental health practitioners to be empathetic and try to understand different points points of views. Well, one of the things that I, I liked from Alan Jenkins' book, Becoming Ethical, was he talked about being on a parallel ethical journey and that, or he was inviting these men to be on that journey of thinking about ethics. And he doesn't see this massive separation between himself and these clients that just as he's becoming ethical himself and always in the process of renewing ethical commitments, he's inviting them to engage in that as well, in that journey. And um, I think something about that, not, not making that huge separation, could still uh, make a conversation happen. Uh, yeah, I, I want to uh, sort of riff on what you just said and what Pritika said a minute before about uh, you know, not wanting to be judgmental. Uh, if you picture 
Alan's work, and again, I'm not up on the, f the, the recent stuff, but you know, we are wanting the client to make ethical judgments about their own behavior, right? And so our judgment, our judging them as people and are not judging ourselves as people would get in the way of that, you know? But as, as I'm imagining Alan's work that you're describing, if he's saying, you know, yeah, you and I are both trying to figure out how to be ethical people here. Let me think about what I'm doing and why don't you think about what you're doing? And you know, where do we stand in relation to our own actions? You know, do we think our own actions represent our best ethics? And in the example you gave, you knew that the guy did not think that that abuse represented his own best ethics. That's not how he wanted to be in the world. But your refraining from his feeling judged by you probably helped him get there. Right. And then what Alan's describing is putting him out there, putting himself out there as somebody who's also trying to figure out how to be ethical would pa also pave the way. Carrie wrote a song. How would you like to uh, introduce us to it? Uh, you, you mentioned that it comes from a uh, talk. It's this this song comes from the the story of Valerie Coder, I, I believe it's pronounced, and her mighty it's either her father or great grandfather immigrating to this country, and initially being been put in jail, and then being taken out of jail by a lawyer um, and then going through and helping the people who were interned in the concentration camps during the the internment of the Japanese and then their birth of his daughter who became a lawyer who is in this case is Valerie who um, then fast forward to the present time who sees what's happening during the Trump administration and uses the analogy of a midwife giving birth um, and that what we have to do is, is um, push and breathe as activists to um, make push for change. And so I took the idea of pushing and breathing and put it into this song that I'm about to sing for you. That's the short, sweet, fast version of it. Okay. When it's time to give birth, we push and breathe, push and breathe. We come to her as children of earth. If we push and breathe, push and breathe, when justice is not here, you see, she rises up and you and me. We midwife on to liberty and push and breathe, push and breathe. We will rise for all we are. We push and breathe, we push and breathe. The road is long and it is hard if we push and breathe, we push and breathe. But with you, my sister and brother, we will love one another the day it's close we will discover if we push and breathe we push and breathe thank you so much <laughs> it's beautiful for me the the repetition of the push and breathe drives it home you know and you can really feel it in a visceral way as a very physical things too and more there's to come at some point, yeah. Just thinking about how how to be in this 
in this time and getting back to the physicality of push and breathe and the, f- the physicality of these times and what it, what it feels like to be in these times and to be wanting to become ethical in these times. There's a physical effort that's involved too that, may, that's not, that evokes that in me, you know. Yeah, I, I think without going into detail of this, the struggles I've been going through, it just, it, I, it felt like something, I related to her struggles and I, I when a long time ago, I, I did a lot of um, Reiki and body work and I remember it being very powerful for me at the time. And so I just, it felt like I needed to ground myself in, in, in something that was very kind of physical, you know, and that, so that I could then act in the world if that makes sense. Because there's, in order for me to act in the world, I have to feel grounded in my body in some way. And there's a need for us to act in the world right now to resist what's happening. Thank you so much. Yeah, I could, I could add one piece to that. My father, John Thorne, was a, a victim of the anti-communist witch hunts during the the McCarthy era of the 1950s. So I think that's also in my blood that we were taken on a lot of um, political events growing up so that what's happening now kind of scares me. And so that also motivates me and pushes me towards towards action and and wanting to um, educate others about what's happened before and what's happening now And, and, and the as a mental health worker to, to understand that it's, it's something that really impacts people in a way and that how we have to come together as human beings to, to love one another and just to be together in community. Yeah. And just thinking about the, you know, the role that music can play in, in memory and songs, I, I don't think I'll forget your refrain of push and breathe because it's in song form and having it sung live. And uh, you know it'll stay with me as like a, a guiding light in these times, I feel like. There's something about songs that can um, make a place in one's memory, memory palace. It speaks to the power of song. I really like the song. Carrie was a wonderful song. It uh, reminds me of uh, when we're anxious, uh, people say, focus on your breathing, breathe deeply. And as a, I'm just going to be starting out as a therapist, our a professor would say, like, when when you're confused and you don't know where to go, just focus on your breathing, start reflecting. So uh, this song uh, kind of speaks to me uh, about that. In any adverse situation, just breathe and push forward. That is what I gather from the song. And there's this movie, a Pixar movie, uh, Finding Nemo, in which... Um, Ellen DeGeneres gives a voiceover to the fish named Dory, and she says, keep swimming, keep, keep swimming. And it kind of says, like, keep going forward. And that is the vibe I got, like, keep pushing, keep breathing, and keep swimming. So wonderful song. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. This is Charlie. Thank you so much, Carrie. I really appreciated that. And I agree with Will. That will stay with me. Um, what what came up for me? Uh, one of the many things that came up for me in terms of listening was, uh, you know, in my uh, uh, world of being an actor in my youth, and the training that was so essential for us, our vocal training, and uh, 
being able to project and breathing appropriately, breathing deep into the diaphragm so that when you're on the stage, you're reaching the people at the back of the audience and about claiming your space. Um, and it's, it, uh, it's very empowering, your song. It, it seems to speak to me about claiming one's voice and claiming one's space. And we thank you for that. Yeah, I, I just want to thank you, too. I, I'm uh, jealous of both you and Charlie because in, in my imagination, I, I would you know, compose and sing a song as inspired by a, 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 an event in life or politics in life, but only in my imagination. <laughs> so for you to actually do it is just amazing to me. <laughs> and I'm really, really impressed and really moved. Well, it's about time to wrap up. I'd like to close with some time for reflections and uh, ask you, what was this process like for you? Um, what suggestions do you have for other ways I could uh, do this kind of work with other communities, other groups? This is Charlie. I, um, I imagine this could certainly work with a much bigger group, um, but it would be very different, I would think. And I really appreciate the size of this group, the intimacy of it. You know, there was no sense of, you know, oh, do I have to fight to get my voice in? Do I even want to? have my voice heard in this group it felt very very comfortable so thank you um i've done two slightly different versions of this one is teaching over at phillips graduate school um where that's a pretty full room and one was uh doing a goodbye ceremony of an intern group and in both cases um we talked about the power of song and David Denborough's work, but <laughs> the difference is that they brought songs that were important to them and they shared why and how it related to narrative ideas. And so uh, this was fantastic for me. Um, and I thank you for sharing the experience and everybody involved. But that I just thought I'd mention that that, that was overwhelmingly powerful experience as well um, as a uh, listener. So. I particularly, the, of course, the David Denborough song was very moving for me, but I, I, I appreciate the whole, intellectually I've understood the power of, 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 of music, but it's, it's nice to be reminded on a more visceral level to how, how powerful it can be. I'd be interested in um, if there's a way to get a copy of that song because I, I work a lot in the trans community and I'd like to be able to share that with people in the trans community if it's possible. He just has it free to download on the website. I can just send it to you by email. Uh, music is a very big part of my life. I love listening to music, singing, and it's uh, weird that the, none of these songs I've ever heard before, so it was mm. uh, very nice for me. And I think I mentioned earlier, but this has been a very learning experience for me, and I loved all your thoughts which you shared with me, and uh, it, I think will help me uh, grow as a therapist. Overall, this is the first time I've ever done something like this. It was wonderful, and as you mentioned, that uh, it's a very intimate group, and it was nice that uh, everyone's voice was heard. So overall, really nice experience. Thank you. 
this is real encouraging and special for me too. It's kind of an experiment. I'd done one other episode like this with some colleagues up in the Bay Area, um, but I was happy to do it here and get to know some of you and share some of what's uh, precious to us and see how we respond uh, similarly and differently to different musical tunes. So thank you very much for your voices, perspectives, and for uh, your inspiration. Thank you for listening. That ends the show. I'm preparing to do uh, another interview in the next few months. I'm also going to be going up to the Reauthoring Teaching Narrative Camp. You can get more information about that at reauthoringteaching.com. The camp this year is in June on Lake Champlain in Vermont. Uh, check that out. Love to see some of you there. And again, to hear about the next LA POMO gathering, you can join the Facebook group at POMO Therapist or message Kathy Adams. You're hearing me play guitar in the background. And I'm going to close with a song by Friendly Males, which are LA band, including songwriter and guitarist and narrative therapist John Tatelman. This is from their first album, No Polera, and they have a new album coming out soon. This is Done It Again by Friendly Males. Enjoy. <laughs>